0: Welcome to the LSQ podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe.
1: Today's scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 8, verse 18 through 27. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligent of the intelligent the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate where is the wise person where is the teacher of the law where is the philosopher of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thank you, Ronan. Good morning and... Welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. This fall, we've been doing a series looking at our culture's narratives that move our imaginations. And so whether you're a Christian here today or you're not a Christian or somewhere in between, I think this is a useful exercise because it's important for us to know that the stories that we live by Are they effective? Do they work? Are they real? Just because our culture believes them doesn't mean that they are. Different cultures throughout history have believed different things, and we now look back at them and say, we know they're not real. And so what we're trying to do is trying to compare and contrast these narratives, and we want to compare them to the biblical narrative as well to see which one explains reality better. Today, we're going to look at our cultural narrative about power. And we're going to do that because, well, there's this UVA Center for Politics new poll that I saw a couple weeks ago that shows that 40% of people in each of the American political parties believes it's okay to do violence to the bad guys, to the people of the other party. That's the highest ever. You have people, multiple studies are showing this, that people are moving geographically in America, to different locations so they can be closer to people that they agree with politically. And this has been happening for a while, but it's been ongoing. We are fracturing. We are dividing. We are becoming more tribal. We're moving to smaller and smaller spaces of people that agree with us. And this is happening in part because over the past hundred years, Derrida, Foucault, Nietzsche have been right that the Enlightenment project is not working. This idea of shared moral values of common humanity that we can all come together and do this, our culture is souring on this as the way forward. So now people are saying all truth claims are essentially power moves. And this is what our culture's view of power is. Essentially it's this. It's that everything, all things at the end of the day really are about power. That's why we look at everybody with deeply suspicious eyes, particularly people of power. We want to know where they got it, how they got it, and how they're using it. And we're doing this to each other. And we're doing this to ourselves. And we're doing this in our world. So I want to look at our text in three parts today. We're going to look at our poisonous pursuit of power. We're going to look at our persistent problem with power. And then we're going to look at the true purpose of power Yes, I used alliteration. It was fun for me. That's why we're doing it that way. Our poisonous pursuit of power, the persistent problem with power, and then the true point or purpose of power. You can use any P word you want there. So first, our poisonous pursuit of power. We've been in the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We've been doing this for our whole series because even though we're going through the modern cultural narratives, what we're finding, surprisingly, As these are not new, there's a modern spin on them, but Paul has been dealing with all the same ones. In today's text, we're we're going back to chapter 1, verse 18. This is actually just after uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at identity and people were saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. And this is actually his answer to that. This is a summary statement for the overall problem that the Corinthians had. And he said, ultimately, it's because of how you Pursue power. The Greek word for power in our text is the word dynamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. It's in verse 18. It's actually further down. Uh, there's a translation in verse 26 about how not many of you were in influential. It's actually the word power again. He keeps talking about power in this whole text. And he's contrasting, verse 18, what is the power of God... Versus the different ways they try to get power. It says here in verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Now what is that? Signs in this context were acts of power. They were ways to show authority. They were miracles that showed that you know what you're doing and that you have the power over creation. Whereas the Greeks, it says they looked for wisdom. What's that? Wisdom and knowledge. It was ways through rhetoric, through logic, through communication... To be able to persuade other people. To get other people to do what you want them to do. Which is our definition of power. So the power is persuasion. So both were different ways to, to do power. And Paul is saying it doesn't matter whether you're demanding in verse 22 signs or wisdom. Wonder or words. Whatever way you want to put it. We're still wanting power. And everybody does this. This is actually where the Bible agrees with our cultural narrative. The Bible actually agrees that underneath every piece of art, underneath every desire for love, every need for approval, every impulse for control, every desire for comfort, is to have, at some level, a movement of power in your life. Last month I, I brought up up here, I talked about a friend of mine that I have in our, my building who's not a Christian, and he knows that I am. He knows I'm a pastor, and so he uh, is very careful. He says, hey, I know you're a pastor. I know you believe what you, what you believe, but do me a favor. Just don't try to proselytize me. We can be friends. Just don't proselytize me. And I remember saying to him, and I said that we have this convo a couple times. I said, wait a second. Can we just hold on for a second? When you're saying you don't want me to proselytize you, you're essentially saying you're basically proselytizing me to your view, not to proselytize you. Why are you getting to use your power on me, but you're not letting me do it on you? It's like unfair. In fact, you're doing the very same thing that you say I can't do to you, but you're doing that to me. Because every moment of speech, every statement of truth is a power move. And he was, after we had this conflict, he he's like, okay, you're good. That's right. That's a good point. But I still, you know, I want to win here. I, I, I still like what I'm, this, 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 this thing. And this is actually why. Our culture is fractions. People are realizing this and seeing this. And so before we move on to the next point, I wanted us to just pause for a second and see where actually these cultural narratives aren't all binary, like all right, all wrong. There's actually some things in all of them that we can agree with. And can you see that your marriage, the problem with your marriage is actually not just a problem relationally. It's a problem about power. That your problems that you're having at work are actually problems with power. That what's making us most lonely, what's making us most sad is, is, has to do with agency and power. And it's because we have a tendency to prioritize three people in our lives. You know who they are? Me, myself, and I. And when we prioritize that individual or individuals, well, we see that, that there's power moves that are happening between all of us. And that's part of the conflict that's happening here. It's our poisonous pursuit of power. Okay, secondly... What's this, um, what's, what's, uh, if this is our pursuit, what's, what's the problem with this persistence, right? What's the pursuit, why is this pursuit a problem? And I think the answer is this, once we identify this is what's going on, then the question our culture has is, well, who deserves to have the power? Who gets to have it? Paul, go back to our text in verse 20, he lists four rhetorical questions here that are examples of how we try to get power. The first one is through, he says, where's the wise person? That's through intellect. Then teacher of the law, that's through the law courts. Then through uh, the, um, he, talks, he talks about philosophy, there's philosophical systems of power. And then the last one, sort of a catch-all again. He's like, well, there's various wisdoms of the world. Again, more power. And as our culture becomes more and more aware that those in power exclude those without, then what, what we're seeing more and more is our culture's solution to that is to take power away from the powerful and give it to the powerless. In the summer blockbuster that I saw uh, this, the, this summer, Barbie, one of the under... Uh, the, it's a, it's a, it was a summer blockbuster. It's, you like how I tried to say <clears throat> Barbie. <clears throat> um, in that movie, one of the themes is that in Barbie land, when the movie starts, Barbie has all the power, and, and Ken is kind of sad because he doesn't. And the Kens don't have it. But then he goes to the real world, learns about power, comes back to Barbie land, takes over power from the Barbies, and now they're brainwashed, and they're sad. So then they try to take back the power from the Kens, and it just goes back and forth, back and forth. It's actually a great example of what our culture thinks about power, that there's just this endless class and gender and racial and political struggle between the haves and the have-nots. And and the answer that they come up with is, well, then we need to take power away from the powerful and give it to the powerless, which, by the way, feels moral on the surface in some ways, and Christianity, by the way, resonates with some of these traits, but it's the way that we go about doing it that has problems. Let me try to give you three quick problems with this view. Number one, the first problem is that, and maybe this is the most obvious one, is that if you reduce everything to power, which is what our culture believes now, then even that statement, everything is about power, is a power move. Which means we can't really believe it. It nullifies its own existence. When you say everything's about power, well then what you just said there, you're trying to get power by using that statement, so that's about power, so why should I believe it? It nullifies it. And the other problem is if every truth and every religion, every statement is that space, and people are blinded to their own power by their class and their gender and their race, they don't see it, then, then the people pointing that out, aren't they blinded by their same position as well? And the way the way they're using that statement is to get power as well? And then also, who's to say that actually the powerful, right, the powerful are trying to unseat, sorry, the powerless are trying to unseat the powerful, that's what the call that culture says. But what if they actually do? Then that means you actually had more power than you thought. That means you were actually powerful if you could unseat who is powerful. Then that means you should immediately, once you become powerful, become powerless. And the idea is that powerless will actually rule better. But if everything's about power, that's not necessarily true. And so, what's interesting about this, this view? is that it eats itself. It's deeply incoherent. It's overly simplistic. It says if we just change the power moves, then there'll be healing and there'll be betterment, and that's just not necessarily true. Second problem is this. If everything's about power, at the end of the day, then there's really no way to move forward in conflict. Why? Because think about forgiveness and reconciliation and peace. Those statements, those things in and of themselves are just power moves. So then everything that we do really is just performative. Everything we do is we're really stuck. It actually look we look at the advocates of the past, the activists of the past, Martin Luther King Jr. and and those like him. What did he say? He said the only way forward is going to be reconciliation between those who oppress and those who are their oppressors. But this view is saying no, sorry, that's not true. And so we're stuck in this sort of endless cycle. It's deeply cynical. It's deeply um, immovable for the way forward. And then thirdly, lastly, this view sees rights that that we view, like the right for free speech, the right to a fair trial, a right to, um, you know, practice religion. Any right that you think. This view says that those are all just ways to oppress people. And therefore, this narrative has no problem taking away rights from those who they deem are their oppressors. Which then means that you can actually justify really any movement of violence, any movement of, of taking away the power from who we think doesn't deserve it. And therefore this view leads to dominion. It leads to domination. It leads to really no way forward to actually having any reconciliation, which is why we're seeing the fracturing. We're seeing the brokenness. We're seeing all this stuff get pulled apart. And now some of you here are sitting here, yeah, that's right. That's what's wrong with this view. These people are deeply inconsistent. These people are prone to domination. These people are non-forgiving. You know what you're doing when you're saying that? You're actually doing the very same thing that they're doing to you. What are you doing in that moment when you're saying, yeah, those people over there? You're dividing, aren't you? What you're doing in that moment is you're, you're marginalizing. You're, you're resenting. You're doing the same. You're actually making a power move. This is what's so interesting about this narrative. It's, it's so sneaky. The minute we think we label people and we say, oh, those people over there, guess what? We've done the same thing. And we might have the modern emphasis of it, but Paul saw the same tendency in the Corinthians. This is, this is a human problem. This isn't just a modern problem. Where have you today, where might you have unknowingly bought into this cultural view of power and, have, and as leading to the brokenness that you're seeing in your own life and the life around you?
0: At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon.
2: Where are we marginalizing others by wielding power in this way? Where have we become deeply cynical? Where you basically, there's a part of your heart that goes, you know what? I just got to get what's, you know, mine, and then I got to get out. Where do I get to say, hey, I know that there's just a a zero-sum game here I got to use, I got to get, and then I got to leave. That's why this is a persistent problem, and it's not going away. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. We're going to see more of this, not less of it. This is, the, this is moving more into our cultural narrative, now, not further away. So last point. The true purpose of power. Notice, go back to our text. Paul says, and this is a whole contrast. He's con- trying to contrast the Christian view of power that the world sees as foolishness. Go back to verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness. Or go to skip down to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block and foolishness again. And so he's trying to say, hey, there's the view that you have about power that you think is the best way to do it. But, you know, we have a view too. But the world thinks it's foolish. Why does the world see it's foolish? If you go to Matthew chapter 20, verse uh, 20, there's this really interesting exchange where some mothers of disciples, which is kind of funny if you think about it. The mothers show up to Jesus and say, hey, I want you to give my sons power in your kingdom. And Jesus, in a very nice way, says, you know, uh, sorry to burst your bubble, but I think you have a misunderstanding about how I'm going to do power in the kingdom. It's going to work differently than, than it works anywhere else. And then later on in that same passage, he says this. He says, The Son of Man, which is himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Unlike our culture that says grab as much power for, your, for yourself, here's Jesus saying, hey, power is real. God has power. The Son of Man has power. Right? Some people here say grab as much power as possible. Other people say, ooh, power is bad. Don't touch it. Jesus you know, comes in and says, no, it's real. He had it. He wields it. But the way he wields it is to serve and not to be served. And the best place I think that you actually see Jesus doing this It's in John chapter 13. If you've never read it, if you're not a Christian or you haven't really read your Bible recently, go to John 13. It's an amazing passage. Because Jesus there, it says this, this is the exact phrase. It says that he's about to wash the disciples' feet. But right before he does that, he says this amazing statement. It says says this. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Right, so he's contemplating power. And then it says, and that, is, so, so I'm going to read it again. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had coming from God and was returning to God. And this is, the key, this is the key word. And then it says, so. So. It's a conjunction. It says, so he got up from the meal, took off his cloak, and washed their feet. Isn't that amazing? It was because Jesus was contemplating the, the power of the universe that he had, and because of that, he goes and washes their feet. That the application of real power is service. There is no other place in Greek, greco roman literature. There is no other place in Jewish literature, in literature from antiquity. No place anywhere else does a master wash the f- feet or serve in any way those that are supposedly beneath them. And yet that's what you see here. Because Jesus uses the power of the universe to clean dusty, crusty, gross sandals and feet. Go back to our passage. And Paul is saying most people when they see the cross, they don't see power at all. It was actually scandalous. You can do a whole deep history about this. That that which a lot of people wear around their necks today... It was the antithesis. It would have been reactionary. It would have been gross. Because if you think about it, if you really want to think about it, you're looking at a semi-naked man hanging by his flesh hopelessly on a pole where people can prod him and poke him, and they did, completely helpless. It's the opposite of it. He was so powerless. And yet, how, so then the question is, is, how did he have power? He had power because of the deep magic that they couldn't see the mystery of the universe is that by losing his power in the space, he actually gained it. How's that possible? James um, Montgomery Boyce, famous minister in Philadelphia, years ago had this great story that he told in a sermon. He said that there used to be a, a, a czar in Russia, Nicholas I. And the czar loved to go around and... Um, Dress up as a common soldier in his army and check in on how his army's doing. And one of his friends, his friends had a son who was stationed in a fort. His job was to take the treasury and pay the other soldiers that, what they deserved. But he got into a gambling problem. He started taking some money from the treasury and then he kept on taking more and more. And finally, when he sat down to look at the books because he had to make sure the books were balanced, he realized that he was going to be discovered. He was going to be caught. It was all going to be over. He was going to bring shame to his family. His life was over. And so instead of actually facing those charges, he said, you know what? I'm going to end my life. And so he took out a revolver, and he was going to end his life at, at the stroke of midnight. But the evening was hot. Maybe he had something to drink. And he fell asleep early. And he sat at this table with the revolver in his hand and the ledger the book that proved all his uh, mismanagement open right before him. And that's when the czar entered the room. He'd been going around. He goes into this, this, he wanted to check in on his friend's son and immediately became known to him. He saw the revolver. He saw the open book. He saw the mismanagement. And he wrote a note in the book and he put the seal, his seal on it, the seal of the king, of the, of the czar. And left. When this gentleman woke up, he saw what was written and he saw the seal next to it. And when the officer saw, he saw this. The statement said, I will make good on this debt. And because the seal was next to it, he knew what had happened that the king had come in and saw everything, saw his guilt, saw his shame, saw him to the core of who he was, all his wrongdoing. And was willing to pay it for it anyway. James Boyce in his sermon said this. He said, Thus did the Lord Jesus Christ love us and pay our great debt. He too, like the czar, came in disguise as a human. He too came and looked to the bottom of every single one of our hearts. Saw the brokenness, saw all the debt, saw all the hurt, and loved us anyway. And he signed the note. Like the good king, at great cost to him, he paid the debt. When the king of creation, when the king of the universe gives up power, who has every right to hold on to it, has every right not to give it up, but gives it up anyway, instead of claiming it as his own, it actually, in a strange and mysterious way, it releases true power into the world. Think about it this way. There's actually nothing weaker, if you think about it. People who, our view of power is making other people do what we want. There's actually nothing weaker than that. Because it means that you have to get other people to do what you want. You need them. And therefore, there's nothing stronger than not needing to do that. The ability to give up and to serve. That's why true happiness is found in the happiness of somebody else. When you serve them. True freedom is when you bind yourself to somebody else in love. That's why true richness is when we can give up our money where we don't actually have to have it for ourselves. That's why when we give up our claims to power, there's actually a lot of power in that moment. Because guess what? In that moment, the things that we thought we had power over to make us get what we want actually had power over us, and now they don't anymore. Because Jesus Christ went into the depths went into the bottom to lift us all up into the heavens. And this is what I need you to see. Without the gospel, I actually agree with our culture's, our culture's argument. Everything's about power. It's just class warfare. It's individual warfare. It's the strong versus the weak. Dog eat dog world. I actually agree with that. But other than that endless cycle, this breaks that. Christianity has a way out of it. Eastern Faith basically say the way out is just to say there is nothing really here. That doesn't really fully acknowledge your humanity. And Western secularism that just says grab it, take it, me versus you, endless warfare and hurt. But Christianity says, no, it's through service and action by the true king who served you first, who died for you first. That's now why we can live lives of real reconciliation and forgiveness. To end, I want to end with just um, two, what I'm, I'm going to call massive implications. Just two implications. Number one, is, this is good, if this is real, if you actually believe this, it's going to change how you wield power. Why? Worldly power says, my life over you. Jesus' power is, my life for you. Worldly power is, you serve me. Jesus says, I serve you. By giving up his power, he even defeats evil in your heart. How? Because Why? If you understood what he did for you, and you saw his love for you, you're going to love him. That's going to change your heart for him and others. It changes the evil. It reverses. When he gives and serves and cares and leads by giving and not taking, by going down so that we can come up. If you believe that, really did, not just in your head but in your heart, if your king will wield power like this, you're going to wield power like that too. If we let the delight and the wonder and the love of the king serving us into our hearts, you're going to serve others, folks. You just will. It's the central message of Christianity. That's why if you make, put them in the center of your heart, you're not, going to, you're not going to move out in power to take it from others. You're going to move out to serve. You're going to have it, but you're going to have it to give. Now you can love others who don't love you back. That's power. You know that? Now you can give back to others when they want to take from you. That's power. Now you don't have, you now you need to know that when you give your power away, it doesn't destroy you. It makes you stronger. You, you, here's other things that you get. I mean, just make a list. You get the ability not to care as much about if they love you or not. That's power. You get the ability not to be controlled by any need for power, approval, comfort, any of the other things, you don't get control by that. That's power. When you're known in Jesus, we can take on the tasks that the world says are beneath them. When we're known in Jesus, we can apologize when the world says, you know what, you don't need to apologize. We could actually own that. We can serve without noticing, without other people noticing. We can give power when normally people would say, you know, you have to hold on to that. And so some of you are saying, okay, that's nice, Michael, very nice in the head, but make that practical. What practically does that look like? Here it is. Are you ready to give up your expectations for how your life needs to go? See, that's how you know if you've actually given up your need for power. Are you uh, ready to give up your idea for how you're supposed to have comfort and control and all these other things of the world? For the core of our faith is a man who dies for those who don't believe in him and don't love him and if you really did put him at the core of who you are you're going to die for people who don't love you and don't believe in you and don't care for you that's the central power of how christians can live counterculturally in this world now and forevermore it's actually why i think for the next 50 years there's an, there's a really powerful position that we could actually have and how we wielded or wield our power and so let me ask you, before we move on to this, from this implication, does this typify your life? Do you tend to die for people who don't understand you or don't love you? See, have you allowed the Lord, the servant Lord, into your life? Maybe in this part, but have you allowed him in all parts? What part of your life have you not let him in? One way to ask that is, what recently have you changed, stopped doing, or, or started doing because you are being served by the Lord ...of the universe with his power. And that changes how we do it too. The last implication is this. You relax. That sounds really simple, right? sounds too simple. You relax. But here's what I know. After being your pastor for the past couple of years... ...New York City is a bunch of type A people. Type A people striving, frying, going, burning the midnight candle. I'm doing it myself. And because of that, it's hard to relax... So, how does this actually make us relax? Try to do it this way. Imagine two people. Two people both say they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they know God's love for them, they know God's goodness. Two same people. And imagine on the same day, they both lose their jobs, they both lose their their most significant other. One person can't recover. They stay bitter at God, they stay bitter bitter at the world. The other person can. Why? They're actually, they, they believe the same thing, right? They say they both believe in God's goodness. They both say they're Christians on the surface. But one can recover and the other one can't. Why? It's because it's not just what you think in your head. When I was a college pastor with um, students uh, on college campuses, I'd meet with a lot of non-Christians, and a lot of them would say this. They'd say, hey, show me that God is good. I need to know, show me how I can believe and know God's good. I go, well, that's easy. I'd take out my Bible and I would say, look, he rescued his people from Egypt. God's good. He feeds 5,000. God's good. He's good here and here and here. And they would look at me with these blank stares like, okay, that's what it says in, the, in this book over here. But I mean for me. How do I know? And I said, ah, what you're pointing out right now is that there's, there's a difference between knowing it intellectually and believing it and experiencing it in your own life personally. That's actually the difference between these two people. As one person read about God's goodness, and the other person tasted and felt and knew and experienced and drank and ate and sat at the feet of Jesus who did this for them. At times in life, because of that, because they actually experienced that, that's why when the experience of the world don't go the way we want we can still feel and know his goodness. And so I want to ask back to you all, which one of those people are you? What, are you the one who just knows it in your head? Or are you the one who have you actually felt it and tasted it and experienced it? You have to. If you give all yourself to him, what the biblical account is saying to you, that's foolishness to the whole world is what Paul says is that you will realize that he actually already gave his whole life for, for you. Go to him now. Start, it's, it's, how do you do it? It's, you can start today. You can start with a very simple prayer. Dear Jesus, give me a sense of your love. Let me experience it. I mean, I, maybe I haven't felt it ever. Maybe I haven't felt it today. But if you just go and ask to the Holy Spirit, you'll be surprised what, you'd be seeing, what you will see. Last thing I'll say is this. If today you're feeling lonely and sad and scared and frustrated, it's, a, it's a, another gloomy weekend. If that's for you today, the cross, I have to tell you, I have to be honest with you, the cross doesn't make those feelings go away. It doesn't. But it is the place where you see and experience God's goodness. I miss my father terribly. There are days that I'm just very raw. It's, there, the tears are always on the surface for me. He hasn't been dead for a few months. And I, at times It's overwhelming. Always on the edge of tears. And the cross does not take those feelings away, but you know what it does? It shows me where the hope is. It shows me a God who actually is not distant from our hurts and my hurts. It shows me a God who knows what He's gonna do, and He's already started doing it to defeat death, so that I'll have my dad back, so that you would have your hope back, so that you'll have your peace and goodness and joy and truth and the people that you care about back. That's what we find. That's what the resurrection's saying. But so my father, he used to say this. He said, if the resurrection is true, then we have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Amen. Experience that. Amen. Know that in your hearts. It'll change how you live. It'll change how you build power. And we can relax and care for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for the cross. Help it not just to be a, of a symbol around our neck. Help it not to just be an intellectual concept. Help it to be real. Father, the world was not going to understand it because it's just a zero-sum game for everyone else because this is all that there is. But Father, since there's more to the world than just what we see, make real to us what is often unseen, as we said the other week. Help us to see, Father, that we should not let this day an idea. Help, it, help us to pray and think and meditate and slam the goodness of this cross into our hearts, often into the most hurtful places, the places we don't want to go. Wherever we are, let us be able to do that. We pray things in your name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.